Hello, podcast audience. This is Jonathan Keller from California Family Council. Thanks for downloading this special episode. We are not recording this live, but we are actually posting some special audio from the recent community forum that California Family Council participated in alongside Right to Life of Central California. Uh, My good friend John Girardi and his great team at Right to Life hosted it, and I hope you will listen to it and enjoy. Uh, Lots of informative content and information. It's about an hour long, and hope you like it. Please share it with people, and we'll be back soon. But for now, enjoy the show. For those of you who don't know, Jonathan and I co-host each other's radio shows. We both host one-hour-a-week radio shows on local radio stations. Jonathan is the host of Life, Family, Liberty, which airs every Monday morning at 9 a.m. on AM 1680. Not the answer, just, yeah, yeah, anyway. And uh, my show, Right to Life Radio, airs every Saturday morning on Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. So Jonathan and I are just very used to talking together. And we figured this could be a kind of informal gathering to talk about the laws, the aggressive late-term abortion laws that we have seen been proposed and passed, uh, respectively, in Virginia and New York and in some other states, and to explain them, to explain why they're happening, and for this not to be a dreary, down-in-the-dumps kind of talk, to talk about ways in which maybe we as a pro-life community, both nationally, statewide, and, and locally, can fight back against this tide. So uh, I want this to be a productive discussion. Uh, Towards uh, the middle of the talk, we'll be passing out um, note cards with pens for you to uh, write down questions if you want to. Uh, We'll have a Q&A session at the end. So if you're thinking you have questions or is there something I say that you don't understand, Jonathan says, um, then just feel free to note it down and uh, we'll talk about it. So on the chairs uh, in the crowd, and uh, Tanya and Liz, my staffers, are passing out, we had two documents. So one is sort of an outline for the evening and the sort of topics that Jonathan and I will discuss. And the other is an op-ed piece that I wrote uh, and that was published by GV Wire uh, about the topic of the late-term abortion laws. So uh, those are for you to take home and reference. Uh, my op-ed, I try to give kind of a good summary of it. And um, I also am happy to announce, we just got this finalized today. This Sunday in the Fresno Bee, there will be a full page ad from Right to Life of Central California expressing our opposition to these late-term abortion laws and encouraging people to contact uh, Senators Feinstein and Harris and our local Valley members of the House of Representatives to urge them to vote for legislation to counter uh, these terrible laws that we've been seeing. So look for that in the A section of the paper on Sunday. So a huge thanks to, um, I believe she wanted to remain anonymous, so a huge thanks to a very generous Right to Life donor who paid for that. Um, it, was, it was extremely kind. Uh, so yeah, so get, save, that, save that page in the newspaper. So uh, to get started, I thought we would, and, and so the format of this is I'm gonna talk and Jonathan will chip in with comments because I'm a lawyer and I'm a nerd, and Jonathan is a different kind of nerd <laughs> who understands people better than I do. So Jonathan will chip in, and uh, we can discuss uh, just sort of like we're doing a radio show. So anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, we're going to start by talking about what these laws do specifically, and then we'll move on to why. So we're talking about a series of laws that have been introduced in a number of states. So New York 
introduced and passed this legislation. Virginia proposed this legislation, but it was defeated. And the state of Virginia is having a very interesting two weeks. Um, the state of Rhode Island has proposed it, and the state of Vermont has also proposed legislation to legalize late-term abortions, it well into the third trimester. Vermont's proposal actually has gotten less press, but is possibly the worst of them all. Here's some of the things that these laws do. The New York law, for example, permits non-physicians to perform abortions. We already have this lovely piece of legislation in law here in California, unfortunately. The laws allow third trimester abortions for the sake of preserving a woman's health. They allow third trimester abortions when a woman's health is threatened. And we're going to talk about why that exception for health is not really an exception at all and how it's really a farce. Um, we will, and how the media is really blatantly gone from shading the truth one way to flat out lying. The New York law also removes conscience protections for medical personnel who don't want to participate in abortion, which leaves them, which leaves, uh, them in a very precarious place. The New York law also explicitly took away protections for babies who survive a late-term abortion. The New York law had criminal penalties imposed for failing to provide adequate ordinary care to a baby who survives an abortion. This language was removed from New York's uh, penal law. So uh, some people have taken to calling these fourth trimester abortions, jokingly, um, and it would be a joke if it wasn't so macabre and so evil. So th the question arises of why. Why are these things happening, and why are they happening right now? And th there are definitive reasons why. So the reasons why, very simply, are Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. Okay. Uh, many on the left are afraid that with the changes that have happened on the Supreme Court, there is going to be a shift in the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence, that, uh, that the court may reconsider its key holdings of Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and Doe versus Bolton. Now, so w that is what's motivating them. Basically, what they are trying to do is expressly put into their state law the provisions that Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and Doe versus Bolton already require. Okay? So let, let, me, let me try to explain what I mean by that. Okay? A lot of people, particularly sort of moderately pro-choice people or people who don't, aren't really involved with these issues, will sometimes give you this language of thinking that Roe v. Wade is something moderate. They'll say, you know, I don't like late-term abortions, and I don't, you know, I'm uncomfortable with abortion. I personally wouldn't have an abortion. But, you know, I think Roe v. Wade, you know, it gave women the right to choose, so, you yeah, know, that's okay. And what they don't realize is that's not what Roe v. Wade is, um, and that's not what its subsequent cases, its subsequent sort of succeeding case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was issued in 1992, that's not what that is, okay? What Roe v. Wade said was that for basically in first trimester abortions, the state has no ability to regulate it, no ability to ban it. In second trimester abortions, you can pass some health and safety regulations. But it says in the third trimester, you can ban abortions if there's an exception for the health of the mother. Now, the problem is what does health mean? Roe v. Wade had a sister case, a case that was issued on the exact same day called Doe versus Bolton. 
And Doe versus Bolton defined what health was. It defined what that health exception was. And Doe versus Bolton created an exception broad enough to drive a truck through. It created an exception so broad that it completely swallows the rule. Because basically it says a woman's health is threatened if it, if it can impact her, and this is language from the case, this isn't me pulling this out of thin air, her emotional health, her financial health, her familial health, as in my family dynamic will be upset if I have this baby. So by definition, there is no unwanted pregnancy that doesn't implicate a woman's health. And the person who decides whether or not a pregnancy implicates a woman's health is the abortionist, the person who's ideologically and financially invested in this woman having an abortion. Seems like a conflict of interest. A little bit, exactly. Uh, so now, Roe v. Wade sort of gave way to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was decided in 1992. And in the early 90s, a lot of pro-lifers thought, all right, this is it. We've had Republican presidents who have appointed all of these Supreme Court justices, and this is it. We're going to overturn Roe. This is our moment. And Planned Parenthood versus Casey was a big stab in the back because Anthony Kennedy, Sandra Day O'Connor, and David Souter, all appointed by Republican presidents, uh, all were thought to be opposed to Roe. Uh, all of them ultimately ruled to uphold Roe versus Wade. And essentially what they did was the old trimester system from Roe v. Wade went away, and they issued this new standard based on what's called viability. Okay, Viability is the point in a pregnancy where theoretically a baby can survive outside the womb. Now viability is kind of a ridiculous standard because the main thing that the, the main determination the main determining factor of whether or not a baby is viable is how much their lungs have developed. That's really the main thing. It, once you get to about 23, 24, 25 weeks, the baby's lungs have developed enough that they can survive outside the womb. So it's not measuring anything like any of these uniquely human characteristics we have, like brain activity or you know, heartbeat or something like that, that's not what it is at all. Uh, it's measuring lung capacity. At any rate, the Supreme Court thought this was significant enough that basically you cannot ban abortions before viability. And if you try to ban abortions after viability, again, you need a health exception. And where do we get our definition of health? Again from Doe versus Bolton, which still remains on the books, okay? So, in effect, what this means is that late-term abortions are already, are already legal throughout the country as a question of federal law. And what these uh, state laws are simply doing is trying to buttress existing state law so that in the event that Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey get overturned, they won't miss a single day of killing babies. That's effectively what they're trying to do. They're trying to beef up their laws right now so that if Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey go away, that state will still have on the books extremely aggressive abortion laws. John, I, I think there's one thing that is a, I hesitate to call it a silver lining because as you said, it's so macabre, it's so morbid. But, oh, push the button again. No. Oh, move it up. Is that a little better? Okay. Um, I, I hesitate to call it a silver lining. I'm a little reluctant, but maybe the one good thing that is happening as a result of uh, these laws is that it is, instead of it being this nebulous thing that only very smart 
Notre Dame graduate lawyers can understand. Um, it, it really puts it back into the forefront of the public discussion because even though it's even though in some ways it's just duplicative of what Roe v. Wade actually allows, now it's actually front and center for the entire nation to see what's actually at stake in the abortion debate. And it, I, I, the thing that's interesting, I mean, you and I, when we did our first radio show, I think after this law, I think we were honestly a little bit surprised at the some of the public reaction because we said, well, wait a minute, doesn't doesn't everyone know this is already what's happening because of Roe v. Wade? But the reality is a lot of people didn't. A, a whole generation of people, even pro-life people, or moderately pro-choice people, as you said, they didn't really understand how extreme Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton actually were. Exactly. And one of the things we're seeing is this is potentially, for any politician who wants to run with it, these late-term abortion thing, this policy of late-term abortion it's a winning issue to run against. Um, the Marist Institute, which is this polling institute, every year, every January around the time of the March for Life, uh, they and the Knights of Columbus produce polling data on American opinions on abortion. And what they found is that basically our public opinion in the United States is not even close to being on the same spectrum as our politics. And what I mean by that is, Right now, the party platform of one of our two major political parties states explicitly that abortion should be legal without restrictions for the entirety of pregnancy and it should be fully funded. 54% of the public doesn't want any public funding of abortion. 85% of the public does not believe that third trimester abortions are legal. 66% of the public uh, believes that anything beyond first tri trimester abortions uh, is immoral and should be unlawful. So what we're seeing is that Americans as a whole are far more pro-life than our Supreme Court precedents would indicate, than our laws would indicate. Um, so I, it, it could be, so I, I was frankly very pleased uh, during the State of the Union two nights ago when the president brought this subject up because frankly, his statements on late-term abortion were, for one thing, very, I thought, appropriately blunt and uh, reflected, I think, the national sentiment uh, very well. And it, I think it's demonstrating uh, that at least the word, in, their, in their platform, one of the two political parties is incredibly out of step with, um, with the rest of the country. And John, I just want to give... President Trump a little bit additional credit. I, I want to stipulate also, neither of our organizations are partisan organizations. We're not Republican or Democrat. Um, and I, I think we could probably all agree that occasionally President Trump says things that we might not agree with. Maybe just every once in a while. Occasionally. But, but all that to say, um, that was probably the single most explicitly pro-life statement ever given at a State of the Union address. Mm -hmm. It, it may I, well have been. I yeah. agree. So, th so that's the immediate cause behind the push to pass these really aggressive abortion laws is the fear that Roe v. Wade and Doe versus Bolton may be going the way of the dodo. But there's other there are other philosophical currents that are behind this. So, and, and I want to talk about these because they're entering the lexicon. They're entering how people talk about abortion. And I think it's important for pro-lifers to understand the ways in which it's being talked about now. So 
what is the big, the big catchphrase from pro-choice forces in the 90s, in the Clinton era? The big catchphrase was abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Safe, legal, and rare. That was the big catchphrase that was always used. And as a result, now this is obviously an inadequate approach to abortion, um, chiefly the legal part, um, but it resulted in some public policies that were pretty good. The chief among these was the Hyde Amendment. Now for those of you who don't know what the Hyde Amendment is, the Hyde Amendment is this rider that gets attached to the federal budget essentially every year, and it basically stipulates that federal money cannot be spent directly on abortion through federal health care programs. Okay? So Medicaid, at a federal level, does not pay for abortion. And this policy has been attached to the budget every year for about, I believe, 40, more than 40 years now. And as a result, people estimate that it's saved literally millions of lives, because by making abortions more accessible, by having the government pay for it, uh, by cutting off that stream of funding, you have saved lives. Um, so what we now see, though, and the language of safe, legal, rare was consistent with that. They would say, okay, well, we think abortion should be legal, but it doesn't have to be funded by the government. What we're now hearing in the last 10 years from proponents of abortion, and this is chiefly, I think, the work of Planned Parenthood over the last 10 years, particularly their, their former director, Cecile Richards, we're not using the language of safe, legal, and rare anymore. We're using the language of safe, legal, and accessible. So I, if there's one word I want you all to remember, it's that word accessible, okay? What does that mean? What does accessible mean? Basically, if a woman has any barrier to obtaining an abortion, the view of the pro-choice side now is that those barriers should be pushed down. If a woman cannot afford an abortion, someone else should pay for it for her, you and me, through our taxpayer dollars. And John, I, I want to point out, I think this is a... a a sadly brilliant marketing point from the abortion industry because what they've tried to do is essentially say, well, look, it's a right. I mean, don't you want people to have access to their rights? Exactly. And it's, it's, a, it's very weaselly because there is no other right, even if it's one that is explicitly actually spelled out in the Constitution, unlike abortion, that you have people demanding that the government pay for that right, that the government make sure the right is as easy to obtain as possible, that you don't even have to drive in some cases, but the right can be mailed to you in the mail. Yeah. Uh, just as an example. Is the, gov yeah, is the government going to, I have a second amendment right. I was wondering if, if someone was going to buy me you know, a, yeah. a firearm do, or something. Yeah, do, that's, do, not, that's not happening. Do you ever hear anybody, and I'm, I'm even talking about the most you know, uh, aggressive, strong uh, NRA member, you ever hear them talking about, well, you know what, it's the government's job to buy me a handgun? No. no it's the government's not. job to make sure that there is a, uh, a federally licensed firearms dealer within walking distance of my house? I mean, it sounds silly when you put it that way, but that's what they're doing. That is exactly what they're doing. And so this language of access is resulting in some pretty extreme public policies. One of these is attacking conscience rights of healthcare providers and hospitals that are either morally or religiously opposed to performing abortions. Um, we saw this with the New York bill, um, that it basically removes a lot of conscience protections from docs who don't want to do abortions. The ACLU right now is engaged in a campaign of lawsuits trying to sow the ground 
for a possible future maybe Supreme Court decision. Basically what they've been doing is going to Catholic hospitals in isolated parts of the country where the Catholic hospital is the only hospital, okay? Uh, and they're suing that Catholic hospital chain. Actually, they sued Dignity Health, which is the Catholic hospital chain that includes St. Agnes. They are suing these hospitals because they're saying, well, you're denying equal care to women because in this region, there's no way for them easily to access abortion and you won't do abortions in your hospital, all right? Now, they're losing these lawsuits, thanks be to God, but they're trying to lay the ground for a future lawsuit, uh, for future Supreme Court decisions or future legal and uh, legislative change. Uh, a very interesting and revealing and scary op-ed on, on this topic uh, was written, how many of you remember the name Rahm Emanuel? Who knows who Rahm Emanuel is? Okay. There you go, the mayor of Chicago. All right. Rahm, Emanuel, Rahm Emanuel's brother is named Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, okay? And Ezekiel Emanuel was, uh, among other things, one of the architects of Obamacare. So he's a very prominent figure in the area of medicine and public policy. Uh, about a year and a half ago, he wrote an op-ed piece that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the most prominent medical journal in the country. Um, my parents are both doctors, so we always had and have a copy of New England Journal of Medicine just laying around. Um, and Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel explicitly in this op-ed piece called for the repeal of conscience protection laws that have been passed in essentially every state which provide a conscientious objection out, basically, for OBGYNs and obstetric nurses and other medical personnel who don't want to participate in abortion. He explicitly says this, is, and he's explicitly using this language of access. By them advocate, by these religious doctors advocating these religious exceptions or these conscientious exceptions, they are depriving care to women. They are depriving them of access to care. Okay, and so in the name of access to care, we are going to knock down the. the religious and conscientious objection rights uh, of all these doctors. So he's calling for this explicitly. This, this man who is, and it, again, helped write Obamacare, like not a schlemiel, like not a, not a fringe person, not a crazy person, um, explicitly calling for this in the most prominent medical journal in the country. John, if we can go back to that Second Amendment uh, example. I mean, if you had, for example, I, I went to Fresno Pacific University. I'm not Myself, I'm not a Mennonite Brethren, but it is a Mennonite Brethren school. Uh, one of the distinctives of uh, Mennonite Brethren theology is that, generally speaking, they tend to be pacifists. Um, you could imagine if you had a store, say it's a, you know, a, a small mom-and-pop uh, sporting goods store, and someone came into that sporting goods store that was owned by a Mennonite Brethren family, and they said, I have a Second Amendment right to a firearm and the nearest sporting goods store is three hours away, you have to sell me a firearm. Well, I'm sorry, I have a, I have a religious objection. I don't, too bad. We're gonna sue you and force you to violate your religious beliefs so that I can access my constitutionally protected right. I mean, I'm a Second Amendment supporter, but I think that would be horribly wrong to force somebody to violate their religious beliefs so that you could access your, your uh, constitutional rights. But that's, 
again. Yeah, and, and that's the level we're talking here. And, yeah. and you're seeing organizations like the Huffington Post, uh, news organizations. News, news outlets. That basically did a three-part uh, expose last year where they talked about the danger of Catholic hospitals and the fact that, oh, you know, you don't you know that there's this insidious move by the Catholic Church to deny women their health care rights. No, there's an insidious move to follow the catechism of the Catholic Church. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, exactly. That, that's, what, that's what's at stake here, John. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, getting a little closer to home in California, I, I want to talk about SB 24, which I'm sure some, some of you may have heard about this from last year, the bill SB 320, that was last year. This year it's SB 24. Um, I believe, now it, it's hard to follow state politics in Sacramento. The Fresno Bee often gives you one page of coverage, and it's usually after something has been passed. So it's hard to follow these things before they happen to try to make a difference. Uh, and if you're watching Fox News, you're not going to hear about what's happening in Sacramento. So if there's one piece of legislation I want you to think about and try to read about, it's SB 24. Okay. So what is SB 24? SB 24 is a bill that would require the student health centers at every CSU and UC yes, including Fresno State, to provide chemical abortion on campus. So that is RU486, the abortion pill, okay? So this is a two-medication stage. You take that. You take the first medication, RU486 or Mifepristone. This kills the baby. A few days later, you take misoprostol, which basically induces an artificial miscarriage so that you expel the baby. Um, they are putting in a whole apparatus within all the student healthcare facilities at the CSUs and UCs with ultrasound machines. Ultrasound machines not for preserving life, not for any purpose other than abortion. That's the reason why there's going to be ultrasound machines at all the CSUs and UCs to perform abortions because you need to make sure that the baby is less than 10 weeks old. Um, 10 weeks old. 10 weeks old. So uh, this is the height of this idea of access, that we can't even force a college student to drive somewhere else in town to get a chemical abortion. It has to be available within walking distance, apparently. Um, this is why this bill was so extreme that last year, it was, it was introduced in the state legislature last year, it was so extreme that Jerry Brown vetoed it, okay? Jerry Brown, not, not known as a pro-life stalwart, uh, but, but that but that lingering Catholic uh, sentiment, I guess, helped him out, and he vetoed it. Uh, Gavin Newsom indicated he would have signed it into law. So uh, that is likely to happen. So that's all the doom and gloom. We're done with doom and gloom, okay? <laughs> so I want to talk now about ways in which people are fighting back and ways in which we can join the fight. And, uh, and I'd ask uh, Tanya and Liz to get... Um, can you get the index cards out with pens and pass those out in case people have questions? Maybe you can, as they're walking around, maybe raise your hand if you want to get an index card and a pen, and we'll pass those along. Um, so ways in which people are fighting back. Right now, Congress is trying to pass fed, their, Congress is trying to pass different forms of federal legislation that would supersede some of these aggressively bad state abortion laws. And this is chiefly being done through two legislative proposals. So one of these is the, called the Pain-Capable Abortion Ban. 
this was introduced in the House and Senate last year. Uh, it was sort of filibustered down by the Democrats in the Senate, but it's being reintroduced. And so we need to encourage our legislators to vote for this ban. Because essentially what this ban is premised on is the idea that at 20 weeks of pregnancy, children in the womb have developed their nervous system enough that they can start to feel pain. Um, and to ban, and what this legislation would do is bring the United States more into conformity with the abortion laws of the rest of the world. That's another thing people don't get is that the United States, by allowing abortion throughout the third trimester, the United States has some of the most aggressive abortion laws in the world. Uh, you'd think, you know, Europe, oh, Europe, there are a bunch of socialists over there, a bunch of lefties over there. Like, of course, they must have free and easy abortion. No, not at all. Most of the countries of Europe ban abortion after 20 weeks. Many of them ban it after 12 weeks. And a lot of them have much more stringent informed consent laws. They have requirements that you go through counseling in many countries like France. Um, so this language would, at the very least, bring us more into conformity with the rest of the world. And John, I just want to add, it's again one of those incredible double standards where very often, you know, we saw at the um, State of the Union, one of the things that President Trump specifically pointed out was the fact that we, America is not and will never be a socialist country. And you notice there were some members of the audience, mostly Democrats, that very pointedly sat on their hands during that. They did not stand up and applaud. It's amazing that you hear people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders. They love to talk about European-style health care, but they don't want to have anything to do with European-style abortion laws. Yes, that's true, because Europe is actually a lot more restrictive on abortion than, than we are. So that, that's, that's a really good point. Um, now, on the back of this outline, by the way, it, uh, we'll keep talking, but on the back of this outline, I've helpfully included a list of all of our local members of Congress and their DC office phone numbers. So your assignment for tomorrow is to call and bother someone. <laughs> so uh, going back, another piece of legislation that's just been introduced is the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Okay, the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. And the name kind of explains what it does. Basically what this does is it beefs up protection for children who survive an abortion. Usually they survive a late term abortion. Now, the, Demo the Democrats have tried to stop this bill from passing on the basis that, oh, this is a solution searching for a problem. There's no, there's no, this isn't happening. This is, no, this is incorrect. Okay. Um, one of the chief problems we see in the field of medical ethics as it relates to abortion, it's this, there's this kind of fundamental question. Who is, in the case of a pregnant woman, who is or who are the patients? Is the unborn child a patient or is it a clump of cells? Or is it a clump of cells? Is it a non-person? Is it a non-entity? And because so many in the medical establishment are so pro-choice and so committed to abortion rights, the answer that they have come up with, and this is the predominant, oh hey, there's my son. Um, the predominant answer that you find in the area of medical ethics is that an unborn child is a patient if the mother wants it to be. That's the standard, okay? Now, what does this lead to? Well, when you get to the third trimester and you get to the point where you're doing a very late-term abortion on a viable baby, 
and this baby survives the abortion procedure, where is the big motivation to provide this baby with the same standard of care that you would give to a wanted baby? You've been treating this baby as a non-thing, as a non-person, as, as someone who is not a patient, as someone who is not worthy of care. In fact, someone who is getting the total opposite of care. You're actively trying to kill this person. And so what we see in state after state, what we see in New York, they're removing protections for uh, unborn children from their penal code, removing the criminal penalties associated with a doctor for neglecting a child who survives an abortion. We saw the case in Philadelphia of the abortionist Kermit Gosnell, who is in the slammer for life, thanks be to God. Um, Kermit Gosnell was convicted for a couple of counts of murder, but he probably performed many more murders than he was ultimately put in jail for because he had lots of babies who he would deliver whole and then kill, or deliver whole and then leave them to die of their injuries, et cetera, outside of the womb. So, and so as a result, I mean, this is, this is a real problem, okay? And this is a, the, the strange way in which the media and the left talk about late-term abortion. So on the one hand, they'll say, you know, late-term abortion, abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy, it's such a rare thing. It's only point whatever percent of all abortions. Well, in a country with a million abortions a year, more or less, even a small percentage is a lot of people, right? The Pro-Choice Guttmacher Institute, which is uh, basically a think tank that was developed by Planned Parenthood. It's now like a slightly separate corporation, but they very much support Planned Parenthood. The Guttmacher Institute estimated that there are 15,000 late-term abortions in America every year. Now, to put that in perspective, the total number of people killed by firearms in this country, and I don't mean to diminish this, by the way, like the firearm deaths are a bad thing, and I, I think it's healthy that we have a public policy debate about it. But the total number of people killed by firearms in this country in 2016, according to the FBI, was 11,000. So 11,000 people killed by firearms, 15,000 late-term abortions per year. And yet the, the amount of public discussion we have about late-term abortion which a huge majority of Americans oppose. Like, there is no debate on the level of what we see over gun control, where you have uh, people very strongly on one side believe something, very, people very strongly believe something on the other side. It's not the case with late-term abortion. Pretty much everyone in America has agreed. But the Supreme Court has handcuffed us to such an extent for so many years, and the media is so complicit in sort of hiding any sort of arguments on the other side, um, that uh, we don't have the robust public debate on it that we should. And that's it's one of the reasons why I'm so glad the president mentioned this in the State of the Union, because it's fostering uh, the kind of robust debate that we need. So those are two pieces of legislation, Pain-Capable Abortion Ban and Born Alive Infant Protection Act. They're introduced into Congress right now. You can call your member of Congress, you can call your senator, and urge them to support this legislation. John, we need to give a, an almost a remarkable update just on the, it's actually the, the Born Alive, I think, or the uh, Survivors of Abortion Protection Act. Okay. The Born yeah. Alive one's from 2002. That one's oh, okay, sorry. But, anyway. But Ben Sass, Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska, you guys have probably seen him on the news, um, he introduced the, this most recent version of that bill. And 
on the Senate, if there is something that is non-controversial in the U.S. Senate, they can basically go to the floor and they can say, I ask unanimous consent to just pass this legislation. It's basically what you do for, uh, for example, when... Uh, when you want to name a road after somebody. Yeah, you want to name a road. federal highway. Or even you want to congratulate the New England Patriots for winning the Super Bowl. I mean, personally, I would vote against that, but the... But the, the, I know, I'm kidding, guys, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, the, that's the type of thing that normally gets unanimous consent on the floor of the Senate. People just say, oh, yeah, okay, you know, it's not a big deal. We'll vote for this. Senator Sass brought this up on the floor of the Senate, this bill, in, in the aftermath of the comments that were made by the governor of Virginia about essentially leaving born children to die. And he said, I ask unanimous consent to pass this bill. And essentially, it was more or less a resolution that said, yeah, we're, we're going to say that if a child is born alive, life-saving care needs to be given to that child. And if a child is born alive at an abortion clinic, that child can't be left to die there on the table. They need to be taken to a hospital. And if you can believe it, the Democrats actually objected and said, no. Senator Patty Murray from the state of Washington raised her hand and said, no, I'm sorry, on behalf of my Democratic colleagues, we oppose taking children that are born alive to the hospital if they survive. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Yeah. So anyway, we, we encourage you guys to support that legislation. It's important. It's been introduced in the House also. Yeah. Um, one of my college buddies and actually introduced it representative Ann Wagner from Missouri so there you go the next thing I want to talk with you all about is an initiative that we're gonna work on at right to life of Central California and that we're just getting started um, this is about what's called perinatal hospice it's the last thing on our uh, agenda before we get to the questions um, so what is perinatal hospice I want to explain what this is to you um, a lot of times well sometimes people choose to have a late-term abortion because they have received a fatal prenatal diagnosis. And abortion is offered to them as, do you not wanna you know, continue with this pregnancy? The baby's going to die anyway. Why not just end the pregnancy now? And this is, I think, uh, a very cruel, twisted notion of care uh, that we're going to take active steps to, to end this child's life uh, in the name of providing you with care. So. Uh, as I've mentioned, uh, my, my staff laughs at me because I, I don't think I'm able to ever talk in public without talking about my alma mater, the University of Notre Dame. Um, so uh, I attended the University of Notre Dame, and uh, the wife of one of my professors there uh, is very heavily involved with Indiana Right to Life and with public policy work in Indiana. A piece of legislation that was passed in Indiana, uh, a piece of legislation was passed in Indiana regarding perinatal hospice. Basically what this legislation did is it requires that any couple who receives a fatal prenatal diagnosis for their, for their unborn child receive information about perinatal hospice. And perinatal hospice is basically hospice care for families who are going to have a baby so that they can go through the process of their pregnancy knowing the baby is more than likely going to pass away shortly after he or she is born and help the couple go through the grieving process to provide comfort care to the baby after the baby is born and allow, you know, allow for a dignified and 
to this child's life. Okay. When couples hear about perinatal hospice, when they receive information about it, 75 to 80% of them choose not to abort. Okay, So that's huge. And that's a piece of legislation that was passed with bipartisan support in the Indiana legislature. It's based off a piece of federal legislation called the, Ken the Kennedy Brownback Bill, which was never really funded sufficiently, but it was named after its two sponsors, Ted Kennedy, not a known pro-life zealot by any stretch, and Senator Sam Brownback, who, who was. Uh, so this is a bipartisan piece of legislation about a very well-accepted medical process, perinatal hospice. It's available in Fresno, by the way, at Heinz Hospice. So if, if you know someone who has a situation like this and they're being offered abortion, you know, talk to them, no, go to Heinz Hospice, go through the perinatal hospice program, you know, this is something that's better. But once couples learn about it, they are far more likely to opt for it. Now, uh, this is something that we could do in California. And um, we've already begun, we at Right to Life have begun some conversations with uh, Assemblyman Jim Patterson, uh, his office, and uh, with other uh, advocates for life, including at the California Catholic Conference, which is the uh, legislative representatives for uh, the Catholic bishops in the state of California. And we're going to start the process of getting a piece of legislation like this going in the California legislature. So this is something practical that we could try to support locally. And Right to Life is going to be trying to make this happen. So um, with that, I think we're at the end of our prepared comments. And before I get to your questions, there are a couple of, there are a couple of people I, I was supposed to thank at the beginning and I, I got all flustered and forgot. So uh, I, I want to first give a big thanks to uh, Dick and Karen Spencer and Susie Byers and Harris Construction for allowing us to use their facility tonight. Um, it was... Uh, It was incredibly generous of them, and we're so thankful. It'll be torsion. Okay, sorry, <laughs> my bad. So, um, uh, also, I want to thank um, the Catholic Diocese of Fresno and KNXT, their TV station, for providing us with the fancy cameras. Uh, all of this uh, this event is being recorded and will be available. We at Right to Life will produce a video of it. It will be available as a DVD for people to use. We'll have it posted on our YouTube channel, so if anyone wants to watch this later, uh, or if you want to share it with someone who wasn't able to be here tonight. Um, and I also wanted to take the opportunity to thank um, Bishop Ochoa of the Catholic Diocese of Fresno, who, in coordination with Right to Life of Central California, issued a really excellent statement on the New York and Virginia laws um, I, it was read at the cathedral when I went to Mass there uh, at 9 a.m. on Sunday. And uh, I know it's been published in various other diocese and outlets. So I'm really grateful to Bishop Ochoa for his support of this event and uh, of Right to Life in general. Uh, so anyway, a big thank you for Bishop Ochoa. And a big thank you to my board member, Teresa Dominguez. Hi, Teresa, who's uh, the chancellor of the Diocese of Fresno. So thank you, Teresa. Um, all right, so we are now going to go to questions. So uh, we have some written out questions over here. And then, Tanya, if there are any comments on the Facebook live stream, people asking questions, then not yet? OK. Well, then, you don't have to. We'll, uh, 
Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the index card questions first, and then we'll uh, then we'll go along. Okay. So the first question uh, is a very common question that I receive uh, as a lawyer and as someone involved with pro-life stuff. Where are the man's rights? How come you don't hear of any men that are outraged that their child has been murdered? Well, so that's kind of two questions. Um, what are the man's rights in the abortion decision? And the answer is none. Men have absolutely no rights when it comes to abortion. Fathers have absolutely no rights when it comes to the abortion of their children. Um, you may have remembered the case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which I told you about. That's basically the successor case of Roe v. Wade. How that case came about uh, was um, basically the governor of Pennsylvania, a pro-life Democrat named Bob Casey, uh, passed this law called the Abortion Control Act, which he knew was inconsistent with Roe v. Wade, and he was directly trying to challenge it. And one of the pieces, of, one of the things in the legislation was that uh, a woman had to let her husband know before she had an abortion. It had had to inform her husband of her decision to have an abortion. And the Supreme Court struck that down, saying that was an undue burden to a woman's right to have an abortion. So. The Supreme Court has effectively just decided that men have absolutely no interest uh, in the lives of their unborn children. And uh, second, and you know, we have heard a number of stories, particularly through our Rachel Vineyard ministry, uh, a number of stories of men who deeply, deeply regret the abortion that they either had a hand in or the abortion that uh, took place at their objection or that they didn't know about. Um, so I think there are a lot of men who, who genuinely are grieving uh, from the loss of a child and, and men who are very outraged, you know, whether quietly or not, uh, over the loss of a child. So Jonathan, why don't you take one? Um, so why don't you take this one? All right. Yes. A little bit higher? Okay. 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 A little closer. There we go. All right. Is the concept of, quote, access to abortion demanded by Planned Parenthood versus Casey or any other court ruling, or is access simply a mantra of pro-abortion forces? Well, I am not an attorney. I did not go to the University of Notre Dame. I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn last night. But um, uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but there, there is no demand of access within Planned Parenthood versus Casey. There's a right. demand to not have a barrier but not that there's access. Right, exactly. And that's, so Planned Parenthood versus Casey was Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme, the former Supreme Court Justice, thank God. Um, that's just my personal comment. Uh, his attempt at saying, oh, Roe v. Wade is too much, but what the conservatives want is not enough, so I'm going to be like Goldilocks and do something that's just right. So uh, Kennedy basically set up a legal regime whereby abortion is legal, but the government does not have to provide you with access. The government does not have to bend over backwards and knock down all of these barriers to access. So no, uh, access to abortion is not rooted in any Supreme Court decision. Now, what are the stakes though? I mean, uh, Anthony Kennedy was sort of in this weird place of upholding this weird status quo on abortion. You had four justices to the left of him who thought he didn't go far enough and that abortion should be grounded in this notion of equality, that women cannot be equal unless they have access to abortion. And those four justices would have swept out all of the good pro-life legislation that has been passed in the last 25 years 
under Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Planned Parenthood versus Casey allowed us to pass certain restrictions on abortion, uh, things like informed consent laws, parental notification laws, parental consent for a minor's abortion laws, um, requiring that an ultrasound be viewed prior to an abortion, things like that. Uh, the left would have swept all of that away, the, the four justices sort of to the left of Anthony Kennedy. Uh, the four justices to the right of him think that states should regulate abortion as they see fit. But Kennedy was holding this weird middle ground. So abortion access could be in our Supreme Court decisions, depending on who gets on the Supreme Court. And that's, that was a long way of answering that. No, but I think, John, this is something that our, our friends on the left, I mean, give them credit, they do a phenomenal job of repeating something often enough in the media that the general public thinks that it is actually a requirement. Like, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you know that the phrase separation of church and state never appears anywhere in the U.S. Constitution or the Declaration of Independence? Okay. So about half of you, that phrase, the separation of church and state, that was actually from a letter a, just a personal letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a association of Baptists on the East Coast talking about religious freedom. It never appears in the Constitution. But when you take public polls of people and you ask about separation of church and state, people are convinced, they know that's absolutely in the Constitution. That's the similar thing that has happened in the last several years with access, is by just pounding on the word access, they've been able to convince people that it is something that is supposed to be granted. And I, I heard someone say one time, a commentator point out, that the left and the media were successful in amending the Constitution without ever having to cast a single vote. That's essentially what they did with separation of church and state, and it's what they're trying to do with the word access. Right. Exactly. Um, one question was given, how can these meetings take place with the Spanish-speaking community? That's a great question, and whoever asks this, come talk with me afterwards, and let's try to develop some strategies. I think one thing is I need to take some intensive Spanish classes on my own time, because we need to have uh, a better conversation about this. And we at Right to Life do have Spanish-language presentations on a number of abortion topics. Um, why we have Tanya and Liz, because they can speak Spanish, I can't. Um, and they've given presentations for Spanish-speaking audiences. So if you want Right to Life uh, to come to speak to your audience, please get in touch with us. We can, we can certainly help with that. Um, one question I wanted you to, just to address. What conditions are considered, quote, fatal under the, prenatal, uh, the perinatal hospice legislation? I'm concerned that children with special needs can be lumped in this category. So a genuinely fatal diagnosis, not a diagnosis of a disability, a diagnosis that this child, because of this or that condition, or a heart condition or whatever, is unlikely to survive very long after birth. So it's, it's, gen, it's, not, a, it's not a diagnosis of, you know, the child has Down syndrome or something. Now, uh, let's talk about diagnosis of Down syndrome, because that's, that's an important issue, and I'll, I'll let you guys know about this. Um, the Supreme Court may very well, in the next year or so, hear a case out of Indiana, uh, then Governor Mike Pence signed a piece of legislation that one of my Notre Dame friends helped pass, um, signed a piece you of legislation. You can't even go a whole question without mentioning know, Notre Dame. Exactly. I just go Irish. Uh, signed a piece of legislation banning abortions for discriminatory reasons. 
So reasons that are recognized in other areas of law as inappropriately discriminatory. So any abortion chosen due to the child's race, the child's sex, or the child having a disability. So this would ban abortions purely because the child has a, pre has a prenatal diagnosis of, for example, Down syndrome. Okay. Now, uh, this legislation has been going through the federal courts, and the Supreme Court is now deciding whether or not to take this case. So uh, this will be a good test for old Brett Kavanaugh. Let's see what side of the aisle he's really going to fall down on. And John, I want to say one thing on that. Um, I, I bet, I won't ask anybody to raise their hands, but I would bet that if we asked people to raise their hands, it would be almost everyone in this room that knows someone, either a close friend or family member, that has faced a pregnancy with a terminal diagnosis. Um, I have a family member, um, very close family member, and I have a very close friend who each of them uh, had terminal diagnoses for their children. Uh, one was a little girl, uh, one was a little boy. In each case, they chose life for their children. Now, what that meant was that each of their children lived for, uh, in the case of uh, the one family member, child lived for about 45 minutes, a little girl. But they were able, her mom and dad and the grandparents, were able to spend a very precious, a very hard but a very precious 45 minutes with that little girl. In the case of uh, my other friends, um, their son lived for 24 hours. He was expected, the doctor said, he's, he's going to be um, either stillborn or he will die as soon as he is delivered. Um, he'll never take a breath. He lived for 24 hours. He took a breath. He cried. And they were able to hold him and spend that precious 24 hours. Those are the types of cases, John, where, like you said, perinatal this is hospice. perinatal hospice. That is exactly how we as a pro-life community could try to come alongside those people and say, we realize this is an extremely difficult situation, but no one, no doctor, no parents, we should not have the right to snuff out that life, even if it's going to be short. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see if we can find a good question. All right. Um, here's one question. What happened with the code of ethics that doctors have to always save a life? Um, and again, this, is, this ties in with what I was saying about the medical ethics about the victim of abortion. You know, who, who is the patient? Who is a patient in the context of prenatal health care? Um, there are all kinds of incredible surgeries that are being done now on children in the womb. Uh, where the child in the womb, because the mother wants that child, is a patient. And there are these incredible surgical breakthroughs that are happening on babies inside the mother's womb. And there are these incredible, unbelievable things. But when you have this medical ethics principle that only a wanted child is a proper object of medical care, uh, then a lot of these ethics go out the window. And uh, even the sort of, quote, respectable expert opinions that were given in the Gosnell case from other abortion doctors who were trying to establish what the standard of care is for babies who survive abortion, even they were giving these horrific answers, where they weren't doing anything to help these babies who, who survived. They were just giving them, quote, comfort care, um, basically to keep them warm as they died. 
So uh, it's, um, it's uh, yeah, the, the, the medical ethics situation surrounding abortion uh, is very grave. It's, it's, it's in a really, it's, it really in shambles, and it's really um, pretty disturbing. So with that, uh, let's see if there's, pardon? We have a Facebook Live question? Okay, sure. Oh, okay. So the question from Facebook Live is, how close is um, the state of California to approving late-term abortion? Well, we, we passed that exit a long time ago. So let me explain what the law is in California on late-term abortion. So uh, remember what I told you about Planned Parenthood versus Casey, how it established this standard of viability. After viability, if you want to ban abortions, you need a health exception. That's verbatim the state law here in the state of California. So after the point of viability, there needs to be some health exception reason, and then you can get an abortion. But as we said, what is health? Literally anything. There is no pregnancy possible that does not implicate a mother's health adversely. So late-term abortion is here in California. Um, it is happening. Um, so uh, let's, let, I want to ask this question. What is the significance of um, women's global development and prosperity for women who cannot afford other non-abortion medical needs, for example, HIV testing, OBGYN care? So and this touches on, I think, something significant that uh, one of the things I never want to try to do is characterize women who choose abortion in negative terms, um, because there are very few women who are, you know, skipping into an abortion clinic in the full throes of irresponsibility and, uh, you know, flippantly choosing abortion. The vast, 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 vast majority of women who choose abortion feel like they don't have another choice, uh, whether it be family situations, financial situations, they're getting lied to by the people at Planned Parenthood or being deceived into, well, it's not really a baby, it's not a baby, you know, blah, 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 blah. And many of them choose this and deeply regret it for, the, you know, for years and years and years and years. So this is why we at Right to Life of Central California, we've talked about this at other things, but I'd really encourage you all to take a flyer about this new initiative we're starting, the Obrea Medical Clinics of Central California. Uh, this is going to be a prenatal healthcare clinic, a pro-life prenatal healthcare clinic right here in the valley uh, that will provide all of these good prenatal healthcare services that women need, reproductive healthcare services that women need, STD testing, STI testing, well woman exams, full prenatal care, staffed by medical professionals. Uh, we have a medical director who's a wonderful OBGYN. Uh, we're going to have basically this full suite of services, all of those non-abortion services that Planned Parenthood talks about, but the actual numbers of those services go down every year and their abortions go up. So that's what, you know, people will often say, why aren't you, what are you doing to help? You know, you, you, here, here you are, John Girardi, some man, you know, what are you doing, who are you to talk to women about what they should do with their bodies? What are you doing to help? How are you, you, you want to defund Planned Parenthood? Well, what are you going to do to help them get those services? Well, this is what I'm going to do. This is what we are going to do at Right to Life of Central California. So for those who don't have information about it, 
please take a flyer. It's trifold right up there or talk to with me afterwards. Uh, this is a major new initiative that Right to Life of Central California is starting. And John, I wanted to say one thing because I was, I was back in Washington, D.C. Um, with our organization, California Family Council. I'm back in D.C. a couple of times a year with different meetings with people at the federal level. And I heard a presentation from uh, someone at the um, Department of Health and Human Services. And one of the things that they pointed out that I think is so crucial to what uh, Right to Life is going to be doing with this new Obria Medical Clinic, um, th there's some great organizations, there's a lot of great organizations both in the state of California and even in Fresno. Uh, I, I see my friend Christy Burkhardt over here from the Pregnancy Care Center, and they do a lot yes. to help women in uh, unplanned pregnancies. And I should have said, I, I get on this Obria track and I, I it's not in any way to diminish pregnancy care center. Pregnancy care center is already doing a ton of this stuff, and it's yeah. it's awesome stuff. And we at Right to Life promote yeah. it, and we Amen. stand shoulder to shoulder with pregnancy care center. Um, I just wanted to talk about the, the question oh. specifically mentioned the you know STD testing Medi stuff. So I got on my Obria track. So. Oh no no no, that's fine. Well, and I the reason I pointed out is that um, in the Central Valley, Fresno metro area is almost a million people. And when I was back in Washington, D.C., one of the things that the um, Department of Health and Human Services, the woman who came and spoke with us, she was actually, this is the secret thing that's pretty amazing, she it was a former abstinence educator. She ran a pro-life, pro-family um, organization. And she said, one of the things that we have been doing behind the scenes, it doesn't get a lot of news coverage, but one of the things we've been doing is to try to make available funds at the federal level. There, there are federal dollars that are already allocated. There's federal money that is literally sitting in an account waiting for healthcare clinics to provide medical services, like John said, STD testing, STI testing, pregnancy uh, services, uh, prenatal care. There are, there are funds available. And you know what she told us? I'm one of 40 state groups around the country. She said, we need your help to get the word out about this because she said, if we don't give these funds away, sometimes the only recipients that will come and get them is Planned Parenthood. They said, we can give these to pro-life clinics. We could give it to a group like Obria. But in a lot of cases, there is not a clinic like that in the area that is interested in taking federal funding and does those specific types of services. And that's why I'm, I'm actually so thrilled because I think it really is a complimentary thing. I know many of you in this room uh, you know, probably support Pregnancy Care Center alongside Right to Life. I, I could not be more thrilled because I think this is going to be something where um, there's going to be a huge opportunity for the million plus people in the central San Joaquin Valley to receive healthcare services from both these organizations, depending on where they are in their life. We can refer people to both the organizations depending on where they are in life. But Obria is gonna fill a need that is completely absent right now in the Central Valley. And I'm, I'm just really proud of John and for the whole team at Right to Life, the whole board for them taking on this challenge because it's, I've had some conversations with John. I know that it's not a walk in the park to get a new medical clinic set up. No, basically, I, I have friends in Indiana, Notre Dame friends, who uh, basically say to start one of these, you, you just plug an ultrasound in the wall and off you go. Um, and uh, that, is not, that is not the process in California. Um, 
uh, one quick question. Uh, so I, I apologize that we can't really get to all of these questions. We, we do need to wrap up, but I'll, I'll be lingering. So if anyone wants to grab me and talk with me, um, I'll, be, uh, I'll be here. Is there some kind of guide or handbook to help us start something at church? Where to start once permitted by the pastor? Uh, give us a call. Talk with us. That's what we want to do. So uh, one of the things I'm hoping with this event, uh, there was this band in New York in the 60s called the Velvet Underground that, that had Ed Reed, and it, it was a very influ it, it was not a very popular band, but the, the line about it was, everyone who went to one of their shows started a band. So there are only 50 or so people here. I hope every single person here can start your band. So and by that, I mean, I'm available. Book me. Bring me to your church, to your community organization, to your whatever. Get our literature up here. Get our contact info. That's what we do. Get me, get Tanya, get Liz. Bring us to your church. Bring us to your youth group. Bring us to whatever. That's what we're here for is pro-life education. So bring us. The next question, really quickly. Thank you for the letter you co-wrote with Bishop Ochoa. Can this letter be copied for copies of larger distribution, dissemination? But yes, we're going to try to promote it on our web. We tried to promote it on our website and Facebook. Um, Yes, Teresa. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, wonderful. The Spanish languages, too. Okay, I'd, I'd been meaning to ask you about the Spanish language. Okay, so yeah, if you want to read the Bishop Ochoa statement, just Google Diocese of Fresno, go to the diocese's website, and it's right there in English and Spanish. So I didn't know it got translated. So great, that, that's awesome. The last question on there was, are you not able to clearly state what the Democratic Party promotes? Now, <laughs> I, I, I was saying that, okay, so uh, Right to Life is a 501c3. We do not support or oppose any parties or candidates. Likewise, California Family Likewise, Council. California Family. But I will, I will happily state what is in their platform for, for educational purposes, uh, that in the Democratic Party platform, they support abortion for the full duration of pregnancy without restrictions, and they support full federal funding of abortion. Federal funding of abortion, yes. So. And, and John, the thing that's so sad about this, honestly, is that, I, again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but it, it, I don't know what anybody, I'm not going to ask what anybody's party registration is in this room. But I know if, if, no matter what your party registration is, I'm sure you have friends that are in the opposite party or nonpartisan. Non this abortion did not used to be so clearly a Republican Democrat issue. I mean, like you said, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the governor who was willing to defend abortion up to the Supreme Court to, to oppose abortion. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, excuse me. To, to defend life, to oppose abortion. He was a Democrat. He was right. a pro-life Democrat who put his money where his mouth was. And th there were many other people. I mean, one of the reasons that Obamacare almost wasn't even introduced into law was because of a, a large faction of pro-life Democrats. And yet, in the last 10 years, pro-life Democrats really have almost place. been completely driven out of the Democratic Party. Yeah, which is sad. So with that, um, I think we're going to conclude our Q&A. Again, I apologize that we can't get to everyone's questions. There was a lot more questions than I thought we were going to have, frankly. Um, but um, thank you all so much. Yes. Yes, so that is listed on, so uh, a good resource for that is, so, yeah. Yes, when you call your federal legislature, federal legislator, use the names of these two bills that are written on the bottom here in the How to Fight Back section. 
Um, or uh, maybe an easier thing to do, when you all get the Sunday paper, find the Right to Life ad, and all this is written out. So the exact uh, the, the name of the legislation and the, the numbers, uh, it's all going to be in that ad in the A section of the Fresno B on Sunday. Um, but the name of the legislation is also written on the bottom of this page. So, um, and I did want to clarify, John, because it was the Born Alive Infant Protection Act was the original bill. Yes, the, John. The, the new one from Senator Ben Sass. If you want to write it down there, the new bill from Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska. You can say, please vote for Senator Ben Sass's bill, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. They'll know what you mean, though, if you just read the thing on here. So. I don't think you need the bill number. That's it. oh, something. Okay, all right. Well, we'll we'll pull that up. Yeah. And, that. Um, all right. Well, we'll pull that up. So. Okay. Um, well, with that, um, yes, sure. Right. Abortions. Yeah. Right. And so let me, yeah, let me address that point. So, so yeah, so this is highlighting, so I, I don't know specifically with the county politics, and if you want to talk with me more about this afterward, I, I'd encourage us to talk about it. But one of the things to note, Medi-Cal is the state version of the federal Medicaid program. What we've done in California is, so federal dollars can't be used for abortion, but what we've done is we set up a separate stream of purely California taxpayer dollars to fund abortion through the Medi-Cal program. So even though federally Medicaid does not fund abortion, in California, our state Medica Medicaid program, Medi-Cal, does um, because of this separate stream of purely California dollars. So we're the only state that has this combo of we will tax Californians to pay for abortion, and California does not report its abortion statistics to the CDC. So we, we are being taxed to pay for abortion, and there is no accountability because no one's, they don't report their abortion statistics. So yeah, talk with me afterward, and I'd like to talk with you about what's going on with, with Fresno County. So, all right, folks, well, thank you all so much, and uh, Thank you for supporting Right to Life. If you want to, um, one last thing I want to mention before you go. Our 40 Days for Life campaign, which is 40 days of prayer outside of the Planned Parenthood Abortion Clinic on Fulton Street in Fresno, uh, will be starting March 6th, Ash Wednesday. If you want to sign up for it, please come to the sign-up sheet right there and just put down your name and email so we can get in touch with you. Um, and if you want to be involved with any other Right to Life activities, we really encourage you to do that. Also, our Youth Educational Conference will be Saturday, February 23rd at Holy Spirit Catholic Church. Uh, we've got a flyer about it right there. So. Uh, please pick that up. If you've got a kid, a teenager who uh, wants to learn more about pro-life stuff, this is the place to go. It's just a morning thing. It's pretty quick, painless. should be great. Um, thank you all so much, and God bless. Thanks so much for listening to this special podcast episode. If you'd like to listen to Life, Family, Liberty on a regular basis, 
please be sure to go to our website, lifefamilyliberty.net. You can subscribe to the show, get new podcast episodes on whatever your preferred platform is, and be sure also to watch us live every Monday morning where you can watch us on Facebook. For now, God bless. Please share with your friends. We'll talk to you soon.